Rojbaş, this is the Kurdish edition podcast and I'm your host Sardar Saadi. Hi everyone, after another long break, I'm back with the 16th episode of the Kurdish edition podcast. This episode talks about the history and many stories of the Kurdish-Palestinian relationship. This is a particularly important episode for me because if we separate some occasional social media posts, there isn't much about the, the relationship between Palestinians and, uh, and Kurds. But in fact, some social media posts, uh, both by Kurds and Palestinians, after the new wave of Palestinian resistance in May 2021 and the attacks against Gaza and uh, against Palestinians by Israeli uh, occupation forces, triggered me to make this episode and uh, shed light on the many aspects of this relationship and uh, uh, some of the history behind it. And yes, uh, this relationship is uh, highly political, complex, and uh, divisive in an environment of ongoing wars, occupation, and hostilities where occupying forces have tried to, cur- to turn Kurds and Palestinians against each other. And naturally so, there are pro-Israeli Kurds on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have Palestinians who support the colonial states ruling over Kurdistan, mainly Turkey. What missing in between are many historical instances of revolutionary, poetic, and incredibly inspiring relationships between Palestinian and Kurds, uh, as you will hear about some of them in my interview with uh, Dr. Abdel Tekriti. I was planning to release this episode during the global protests in solidarity with the Palestinian resistance in May 2021, especially as a show of solidarity from this podcast, but this uh, obviously couldn't happen. However, a bit late as it is, uh, here I would like to express my wholehearted solidarity with my Palestinian brothers and sisters in their struggle against Israeli occupation. This episode is dedicated to Palestinian comrades, political prisoners, refugees, and all of those resisting the settler colonial state of Israel. One of the slogans by many Kurdish and Palestinian protesters who participated in recent Palestinian solidarity actions around the world, and especially, uh, I think, in Berlin, Germany, was uh, uh, Palestina, Kurdistan, Intifada, Serhaldan. I believe the spirit of this slogan could be the leading point for all of us to build stronger solidarity movements and relationships between Kurds and Palestinians, as well as with with and among the people of the Middle East region uh, who struggle against tyranny of their authoritarian regimes, reject sectarian politics, resist imperialist forces, and imagine alternative just and democratic futures for themselves. This episode has three parts. In the first part, I interviewed a Palestinian scholar, Dr. Abdurazak Tekriti. Dr. Tekriti particularly mentioned uh, uh, that I should... Uh, uh, point out uh, to his Palestinian origin because many uh, confuse uh, confuse his origin to uh, Iraq uh, because Tikrit is a city in Iraq north of Baghdad and he said that many in Palestine have uh, uh, last names that are connected to places or uh, different uh, identity groups uh, in the Middle East region 
but he's a Palestinian scholar, and uh, I'm really proud that uh, Dr. Takriti uh, accepted to be on uh, my podcast. Dr. Takriti is the inaugural holder of the Arab American Educational Foundation Chair in Modern Arab History, uh, Associate Professor at the Department of History and Founding Director of the Arab American Educational Foundation Center for uh, Arab Studies at the University of Houston. His research focuses on the history of revolutions, intellectual and political currents, and state building in the modern Arab world, as well as uh, on global histories of empire and, and uh, anti-colonialism. Dr. Takriti has written a chapter on the Kurdish-Palestinian relationship for a forthcoming book uh, titled The Political and Cultural History of Kurds. This book, which is edited by Amir Harak and will be published by Peter Long, is dedicated to the prominent Kurdish scholar, Professor Amir Hassanpour, who uh, was a longtime friend and comrade of the Palestinian people and their struggle and an outstanding example of solidarity with Palestinians among Kurds. Dr. Takriti, in his chapter in this book titled The Kurd and the Wind, The Politics and Poetics of Palestinian Kurdish Affiliation, uh, talks about the relationship between the renowned Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish and prominent Kurdish poet and writer from Rojava, Salim Barakat. This relationship has surprisingly received little attention for its symbolic weight. Darwish, in a poem that he wrote for Barakat, speaks of the common pains of Palestinian, Palestinians and Kurds and, fa- and famously says, the Kurd has nothing but the wind. In this chapter, uh, Dr. Takriti beautifully puts the relationship between these two literary giants of the region on display and sheds light on deep and sorrowful stories and histories that connect Kurds and Palestinians to each other. In the second part, uh, I speak to Elif Genj about her article in uh, Middle East report on Kurdish-Palestinian relationship with a focus on more recent uh, developments. And the third and final part of this episode will be uh, a talk by the late Professor Amir Hassanpour about Palestine and the necessity of building uh, stronger solidarity networks uh, for Palestine. This talk was presented in 2012 at the annual general meeting of uh, Independent uh, Jewish Voices, uh, which is a grassroots organization based in Canada. Before my interview with Dr. Abed Tekriti, uh, let's listen to The Kurt Has Nothing But The Wind, uh, a song by uh, Salah Amo and Peter Gabiz based on Mahmoud Darwish's poem of the same uh, name. Let me know 
Thank you so much for accepting to be on uh, the Kurdish edition podcast. Uh, your chapter uh, talks about a history that, as you say, uh, it is too often forgotten. Uh, and this is the Palestinian Kurdish history. And uh, you're doing a, a beautiful work in revealing this history with all of its complexities, defeats, victories, through looking at the uh, Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darvish and uh, the Kurdish writer Selim Barakat's friendship, comradeship, and maybe beyond that, as you trace in your book, the relationship between a father and a son. But before coming to Darvish and Barakat's story, I want to ask you why or how you find this story, this history, uh, this history between uh, the Palestinian uh, and Kurds forgotten. Why it is forgotten? Thank you very much, uh, Sardar. Uh, the question of uh, forgetting and remembering in history uh, is of course conditioned uh, by the context in which we live in. And often the geopolitical infringes upon the moral, the ethical uh, and the uh, revolutionary. 
both the Palestinian and Kurdish uh, peoples uh, have suffered a great deal in the modern history of the region. Uh, in fact, um, any uh, serious observer of the, of the region will notice that uh, these two questions uh, were two of the biggest and most persistent questions uh, uh, that uh, uh, require immediate action and that require an uh, agenda of national liberation, of course. Their contexts are different. They come from different uh, uh, historical experiences, but uh, they both entail an element uh, of uh, uh, persistence and uh, at the moment, irresolution. Uh, so given this connection between the, the, the two struggles, we notice, however, that uh, they are confronted by geopolitical forces that are uh, very uh, complex uh, and that have often uh, shaped the relationship between them, mm -hmm. or affected at least the relationship between them. You would expect normally that a natural uh, sort of solidarity would emerge between two causes of this kind. However, there are various structural conditions that affect them. Uh, one of them is, is that in the case of uh, uh, Palestine, the hostility to the Palestinian cause on the popular level never emerged out of the region of the Middle East itself. You ask your average Middle Easterner, you'll find a deep sense of sympathy, a deep sense of connection with Palestine. Uh, sometimes there's a lack of knowledge uh, but more often the, uh, than not, there is a commitment to this issue uh, because there's a certain clarity around it and because the contradiction between uh, Palestinians and uh, the European Jewish settlers that, uh, that came to Palestine uh, is an easy concept to grapple with for the people of the region. There was never any serious popular Zionist strand in the region on the popular level. Yeah. You know, you've often had leaderships having uh, uh, sometimes alliances with the Israeli state or so on and so forth, but there's no ideological current of a major kind that is uh, seriously Zionist in nature. And that has been the case from the very beginning of uh, the post uh, First World War settlement that resulted in the, the uh, domination of both the Kurdish and the Palestinian peoples. So when you look at something like the uh, King Crane Commission report, for example, where uh, you know that the King and Crane were investigating on behalf of President Wilson, uh, what the desires of the people of the uh, region are uh, for the post-war settlement, uh, the overwhelming majority of people were very opposed to the idea of setting up a, a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. And they were very pro the idea of Palestine remaining for the Palestinians. So um, that outlook uh, was there from the very beginning and it continued, in fact, it intensified. You come to the Kurdish side of things, it's different because the contradiction between uh, the Kurdish national movement uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, its, its oppressors involves the regional states themselves. 
Um, you know, the, the Kurdish national movement is not confronting uh, a settler colonist population coming from Europe, principally Eastern Europe, um, and, you know, responding to things like the pogroms of the 19th century uh, and later on uh, anti-Semitic uh, laws that culminated uh, in uh, mass murders in Europe in the, in the 20th century. The, what, what the Kurdish people were confronting were the regional state structures. They were confronting the Turkish state. They were confronting right. the Iranian state, the Iraqi state, and uh, uh, to some extent, the Syrian state. So this uh, um, situation uh, also means that these states' apparatuses uh, are active in uh, portraying this movement uh, in a solely secessionist light, uh, portraying this movement uh, as a movement that is uh, supported from outside uh, and that is a fifth column uh, that is trying to stab in the back uh, the respective populations of these states. So instead of um, understanding uh, the conditions and the needs and the uh, desire for liberation of Kurdish uh, peoples in each one of these states, uh, the idea is to uh, criminalize them or to uh, marginalize uh, their national aspirations. Um, now, of course, uh, part of what I write about is that that story was also complicated and it differed from time to time. Yeah. Uh, especially in Iraq, there were moments of recognition that were much bigger than that. Uh, there was a, a, a lot of push and pull that, was, that had to do with the balance of forces in that country and with the, with the different uh, movements that were operating in it. But I'm generalizing here for the purpose of shedding light on where the differences lie and how regionally Palestine and Kurdistan are perceived. Okay, now, so, yeah, go ahead. Now that... I worry sometimes can produce tensions between the two causes. Mm -hmm. In the case of uh, uh, Palestine, it is so embedded in the regional structure. It has connections with every people in every state in the region. The connections that have nothing to do with Kurdistan. The, these connections would have been there whether there was a Kurdish cause or not because Palestine has a, a certain uh, religious significance, you know, with Jerusalem and all of that. So the, the religious wing likes it. It has a national liberation significance that appealed to the left as well. Uh, so they, they would have always been uh, pro it. And uh, for the uh, uh, different nationalist currents, especially in the, uh, in the, in the Arab region, uh, it was seen as an Arab issue. So there was immediate uh, uh, connection with it. If the, these natural connections, however, exist, uh, you would expect sometimes that uh, there would be a negative feeling amongst uh, certain uh, Kurdish uh, sisters and brothers and movements uh, uh, around this. Um, and you see this sometimes. I mean, I hear, uh, for example, the frustration when people are like, well, you know, Erdogan is making uh, statements in support of Palestine or, Saddam Hussein, before he got executed, used to talk about Palestine all the time. 
look at what they're doing in Kurdistan and they have this big talk around Palestine. And by default then, you know, in some Kurdish quarters, you get this almost uh, sometimes hostility emerging to Palestine. Some of them even, uh, you know, uh, could go in a direction uh, uh, that, that, that is uh, uh, not only um, laden with, the, uh, uh, with, you know, frustration, but could even tilt in the, in, towards the Israeli uh, uh, narrative. Um, now, I'm not saying that's the majority, but we've seen it sometimes uh, take place. And I think it's better to talk about it and be open about it from a solidarity perspective uh, between these two peoples that should have natural solidarity between them than to bury it and ignore it and pretend that all is well and happy. Yeah, okay. and the, exactly in this kind of relationships, in this kind of uh, political, as we talked before, as recording this interview, this messiness, we see this beautiful story uh, that you talk about and uh, not many people know about it. Like I heard about it from uh, a Twitter post a while back, a few months ago. But then after reading your chapter, which is going to be published uh, uh, hopefully soon, we see the, the depth of uh, and the extent of this relationship that we don't know about it. And I'm not sure about the Palestinian community but the, among the Kurds, this, uh, the, uh, the extent of this relationship between Kurds and Palestinians in different uh, sides uh, have been uh, deliberately forgotten, have been uh, have been erased. Um, so I want I want to uh, go a little bit more into this history between these two people before uh, going into your uh, story about Dervish and Barakat. Can you do like a kind of a brief review of how this connection started before coming to the point where when uh, Dervish and Barakat met? Well, I, th I think we have to uh, go back to Iraq, first of all. And that's a good place to start because mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq, of course, the Palestinian cause was always very popular. Mm -hmm. And uh, Iraqi Kurdish intellectuals uh, who were active in Iraqi campuses, who were exposed to the uh, circles, especially of the Iraqi Communist Party, right. uh, had developed a, a very keen awareness uh, of what was going on in Palestine. So already there was awareness amongst uh, that radical sector, which produced uh, uh, the wing that uh, for better or worse is often associated with uh, Jalal Talibani, for example, and others. Um, the, the, that wing, most of its cadres uh, were affected in one way or another by the Palestinian cause. Uh, we give and, some dates. Um... Uh, I know that in 1958 with the uh, Abdul Karim Qasim's revolution, uh, there is this very strong uh, tendency to uh, to build this fraternity between Kurds and Arabs. Uh, Mullah Mustafa Barzani was invited back to Iraq. And for three years, we see this honeymoon between Kurds and Arab. And then in 61, things fall apart until 1964, we had this uh, coup kind of and called Batis uh, revolution against uh, Qasim. Do you mean, and this is the same time that the Talibani and the urban radical Kurds are separating from Barzani. Uh, 
So mm -hmm. do you, when you mentioned Iraq, do you uh, look at this very uh, period? Yeah, I, 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 I do, and I, I, but I do think that we have to go back even earlier to the 1930s when the Iraqi Communist Party was formed. Right. Because that was a space uh, which included both Arabs and Kurds and which included uh, progressive positions on the Kurdish uh, cause. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a, a whole range of discussions on uh, self-determination, on, uh, on the idea of the Kurdish cause as a national cause. And, and not just in office of course yeah. and I think this is the heart of the of the issue um, there there was always a current in the Arab world that believed that the Kurdish cause is a national cause not just an ethnic one right and I think once we start from that premise that's when solidarity can be possible and I think that was even before uh, Iranian and Turkish leftists uh, long before I mean, I think that, that, yeah, to kind of I, approach the reasons for that. There are reasons for that, so there. It's not that Arabs are more open-minded uh, than Iranians or Turks. It's that this, the Turkish state and the Iranian state were old imperial states that were much more powerful. Right. Okay. They were not in the process of nascent constitution in the post uh, World War One period. They were in the process of reassertion. Uh, and maybe a reclamation of lands and so on and so forth. But the state structure itself is very powerful. Right. And uh, that state structure sponsored as a result, a powerful uh, nationalist movement corresponding to that state structure. In the Arab region, uh, what you had was states that came under uh, direct foreign rule, whether in Iraq or in Syria, uh, you know, these are of course the two Arab states that have substantial Kurdish populations, especially Iraq. I mean, of course, Turkey has much bigger uh, uh, population and, and, and it has, as a result, also the, the demographics play a role, you know, in, uh, in, the, in generating the hostility and the, but in a place like Iraq, for example, uh, you had a substantial population, it's concentrated uh, in, a, in a region that has certain contiguity to it. Um, and it's a region uh, that it was part of the overall Iraqi formula of falling under Britain. Yeah. Okay. So as a result, uh, radical movements in these spaces who were combating colonialism had to engage with something like the Kurdish question uh, in, a more, in a more open-minded way. That's why we see this open-mindedness. Now, in the Abdul Karim Qasim period, uh, what was significant about Qasim coming into power uh, was that um, the Communist Party was very influential, you know, uh, had, had influence on him, but also uh, he was coming from a Iraqi nationalist position. And if you're and Iraqi, you even call him that uh, the Lenin of uh, Arab war at that time, was it? Sure. Sure, there's many people that have called him many different things uh, and that's definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, if you're coming with, uh, whether you're coming from an Iraqi nationalist agenda or a communist one, you will, you will uh, need to accommodate the Kurdish cause somehow. Yeah. Okay. So, because the Iraqi national line is of course, uh, 
has to recognize the fact that Iraq has two big nationalities. Of course, it has others, but the two big nationalities are the Arab and the Kurdish one. Uh, so it's a binational uh, country. It's not a uh, it's not a it's not a country that has one nationality in it. Um, so for someone like Qasim, it was important to accommodate uh, this other nationality. Of course, uh, uh, you can return this uh, to issues of kinship. Some people say he had uh, Kurdish uh, uh, relatives and so on, but uh, you know, but we're not going to go into that. Politically, what's more important uh, is that that was part of his political outlook. Um, now, uh, of course, the Communist Party was uh, his, his biggest, their biggest, his biggest supporters at the time uh, were communists. So that also uh, probably played a major role. Now, what he does is he's the one that brings Barzani from exile, as you know. You know, he invites him to come back from the Soviet Union. And it is precisely to indicate as part, as part of his program of uh, uh, one of the principles of the revolution is uh, uh, Kurdish Arab fraternity. He announces that as a major principle. It actually goes into the constitution, uh, uh, the post-revolutionary constitution. So we see all sorts of things happening. Um, now, Barzani and him eventually clash after this honeymoon. And uh, and there was an Israeli influence on Barzani because for that. There was a major Israeli influence on Barzani, but I, uh, but I, I also would caution as a historian, uh, reducing the clash with the, uh, Qasim and Barzani uh, to that. Okay. Because Israeli influence helped uh, uh, develop the clash in a way, you know, but it was too early in this period. Uh, you know, uh, yes, you had uh, uh, Badra Khan operating in Europe and meeting with Golda Meir in the late 50s, for example. And he was doing so on behalf of uh, Mullah Mustafa. Uh, but uh, Mullah Mustafa had a close connection with Qasim at the time. Uh, they did clash over questions that had to do with the paramountcy of Mullah Mustafa in the Kurdish areas in the north. Right. They clashed also over questions that had to do with the land reform that uh, Qasim was pushing through, which of course affected uh, uh, some of the landlords that were uh, close to um, to Barzani's circle. Uh, there was also a clash over uh, Barzani's enemies within the Kurdish areas, mm-hmm. which Qasim was uh, trying to keep a connection with them as well as keeping a connection with Barzani. But they were, uh, some of these people were uh, clashing with Barzani as, as well. And you know, I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not suggesting that they're good people or bad people or whatever, but, but, but what, I'm, what, I'm, what I want us to focus on is that uh, there were a set of contradictions structurally that yeah. meant that that relationship was fraught with issues. And that came to light, especially after the uh, assassination attempt on, uh, uh, on Qasim. So once we end up in that situation, um, there, there is a, a, a tense atmosphere developing. Barzani is cornered and so is Qasim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Qasim ends up uh, seeing Barzani as being insubordinate to him because he 
launches a campaign against some of Qasim's allies, uh, but his, uh, you know, Kurdish allies in the Kurdish areas. And uh, but, uh, when he refuses to uh, uh, seize that campaign, but uh, Qasim sees him as being insubordinate, you know. So Qasim wanted to be uh, in full control. He did not see this as an equal relationship. Yeah, and then we know how this whole uh, relationship kind of collapsed. It collapsed, uh, you know, because Qasim goes and uh, bombs uh, Barzani's, uh, uh, you know, actual home in the area, and, which means that there is no option but to launch then an armed uh, uh, revolution. That's where the origins of the Ailul revolution had to do uh, with, with this failure of the initial experiment uh, that Qasim, I believe that Qasim genuinely wanted to, uh, to apply and that Barzani wanted to apply. By the way, it's interesting. Um, uh, there's, a, uh, there's an almost strange nostalgia for Qasim amongst many of the Kurdish leaders of that generation. Uh, and especially in Iraq. Uh, so you don't find uh, um, this idea that uh, this was uh, somebody who was an enemy of the Kurdish people per se inherently, uh, but the, there is no doubt that as a result of uh, this uh, uh, clash between Barzani and, uh, uh, and uh, Qasim, um, things be, uh, went out of hand and the contradiction became inevitable between the centralizing Iraqi state and the newly emerging uh, or newly rejuvenated Kurdish national movement in Iraq I mean, at the time. It was kind of huge because uh, like as uh, someone who uh, is studying the Kurdish movement in Bakur or in, in Turkey, I see that the revival of Kurdish nationalism in Turkey and, uh, you know, this famous case of 49ers, Crypto uh, Kuzla, it starts right after uh, this uh, after uh, Karim Qasim's uh, revolution and uh, recognition of Kurdish rights and inviting uh, Barzani back, and there is a revival of Kurdish nationalism in uh, in Turkey and in Iran. There are uh, movements of uh, radical uh, students, Kurdish students. Uh, it's a different story, but uh, it was a very historical moment, and that's why it uh, it has its impacts until uh, now. But the, let me, uh, uh, you, in your chapter, you mentioned that at that time, uh, many Arab uh, uh, poets, writers, they praised uh, the, the September revolution and uh, they, they talk about Kurds and they are kind of supporting. Who are they and what they wrote? And there is a poem by uh, Dervish uh, for, the, uh, for this very occasion uh, that I, we, we, can, we can read it later, but, uh, First, if you uh, can uh, tell us about those, the environment within leftist, uh, Arab leftist movement and uh, how they approach this uh, clash, this revolution. Well, uh, Sardar, uh, I'm not gonna focus on the Iraqi side because by the way, that requires a whole book on it or several books. Um, seriously, all the major poets you can think of in Iraq uh, that had any connection to the Iraqi left took a very strong stance uh, in support of the, uh, uh, the Kurdish revolution at the time. Right. So you had the uh, Jawahiri, you had uh, 
Al-Bayati, you had major figures in Iraq. And for them, of course, the issue was much closer to, the, to their hearts because they, they knew the Iraqi Kurds, they interacted with them. And these were poets who were active in the communist uh, solidarity work, right. you know, uh, which meant that they uh, did not start from uh, a, a point of view that uh, saw uh, national differences as informing their, uh, how they uh, approach the world. Uh, they started from a point of view uh, of uh, seeing uh, class questions and issues of internationalism was determining their politics. Right. So, uh, and many of them, of course, uh, were influenced by um, earlier Leninist principles, like the recognition of uh, uh, nationalities and, and uh, national self-determination as a core uh, idea in, in, in Marxism-Leninism. So they, they were coming at it from that angle. For them, it was almost uh, essential to uh, illustrate that they were not chauvinist Arabs by declaring a very strong solidarity with uh, uh, with the with the Kurds. They saw the war launched by the Iraqi state as uh, unnecessary, as as destructive, uh, and as oppressive. Uh, that's how they they viewed it, and you can see that in their poems. Now, on the Palestinian side. We see it very strongly in two very major canonical figures who were still very young at the time, yeah. uh, Mahmoud Darwish and Samih al-Qasim. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of them uh, wrote uh, very strong poems. I mean, Mahmoud Darwish's poem at the time, Kurdistan, is, uh, is you know, uh, I, there's no question about it. It's, it's, Do you uh, mind it, if I read it? I don't know if you have it in front of you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I can read uh, some parts. I don't want to read the whole thing because it's long. Uh, yeah, but the one uh, that says I've translated, I've translated uh, some parts of it in this article, and he says the hearts of of the people are with you, even if shells were to fly in the mountains. The eyes of the people are with you. They march undeterred over the thorns. The slaves of the earth are with you, from the waste of the ocean to the north. I am with you, my father is with you, my mother, my olives and the scent of oranges. The wind has not separated us. The struggle of your nation is my struggle. It's, 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 uh, uh, it's very typical of Mahmoud Darwish's early direct style. Later on, by the way, uh, he abandoned many of these poems that, that he saw as being too directly political. And they later, were not even published uh, by uh, later on by uh, his publishers. Is that correct? Of course. He, uh, and, and in fact, I go into this in the article. Uh, yeah. Some Palestinian literary critics even say that Mahmoud Darwish went into a comprehensive campaign of self-purging mm -hmm. when it came to many of his direct early political poets, because he had a lot of them when he was a, a, a young communist po poet writing in the 20s, in his early 20s. And then later on, like uh, as he as he became, uh, I, I don't like that word, but he became a much more sophisticated poet. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, somebody who is uh, very sure of his craft and and uh, and and really, you know, uh, his, his his criteria became uh, much more uh, rigorous in a way and and uh, uh, much more self-critical. He, he did the most painful thing that an author could do, which is uh, lots of self-purging uh, when it came to their later collection. Yeah, I, I mean, this we had the same thing with the Kurdish singers who did sing for Palestine, but uh, uh, I don't want to talk about it today. 
but but no, but uh, uh, so there. This is the interesting thing, and that's a point I make in the in, in this article. Notice, uh, the self purging was not restricted to Kurdistan. A lot of Kurds think that, especially in Iraq, because they know this poem in Iraq. They they used to have it in Peshmerga bases and so on. You know, it was actually rediscovered in the early seventies uh, through Hiwar magazine, and then uh, was spread around in the Peshmerga bases, but. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, he erased it because it's a Kurdish poem. And that's not true. Later on, he did a much more powerful poem, in my opinion, for Kurdistan, but much more abstract, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Kurd has nothing but the wind. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. Yeah. But that is in, for, if, if you're a poetry aficionado, there is no comparison. It's a much more... Uh, challenging and very deep reflection yeah. on the Kurdish cause that's coming from a place of pure love. Okay, this is not somebody who is coming in eradicating his Kurdish uh, uh, poems. This is somebody who took out from his collections many poems on Palestine of that were of this sort, very yeah. direct, very you know, I am in solidarity and we're going to conquer the world and all of the uh, you know we're going to liberate humanity, all of this stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he he took out poems on Cuba, on Algeria, like of this style. It's not because he became hostile to Cuba or Algeria. It's just he changed his poetic outlook. Okay. Uh, his, and his notion of what is good poetry changed. <laughs> I, I will come back to Darwish, uh, but uh, do you want to continue a little bit more on this history? So we have this very interesting period, and then we have uh, like... Uh, a lot of things happened, you mentioned oh. them. Uh, maybe we can briefly uh, talk about that and then come to our main story. So why, why we started in Iraq and we spoke so much about it is that as you correctly noted, uh, it actually had major reverberations. Exactly. You, know, you mentioned the Turkish side, uh, you know, that in, in amongst the, uh, the Kurdish movement, uh, there was an immense uh, influence uh, uh, of, uh, you know, that the, the, the Iraqi uh, um, developments had on, on it, you know. The, so what's happening in Iraqi Kurdistan, in Kurdistan, it, it influences everything around the region. Um, now, if you look at it from the Arab angle, there's two interesting facts. One is the communist current, which we just referred to uh, via its poets that it stands in support of this uh, Eilul revolution or at least against the state repression of it. Um, you also find that uh, the, the other current, which is much bigger, the Nasserist current, does the same. So uh, Nasser actually uh, broadcasts, uh, you know, supportive uh, uh, messages on the radio waves, uh, he uh, hosts some uh, Kurdish uh, delegations. He allows, you know, he has he begins to develop contacts with, the, especially with Talibani and and others of that sort that were open to this idea of uh, uh, Arab Kurdish uh, cooperation. And he started and, this Kurdish radio. Yes, absolutely. And he, you know, of course, before he hosted Barzani and he did, you know, many other uh, different initiatives of that kind. He was opposed to. Uh, military solutions to the Kurdish question. Mm -hmm. He was also opposed to not treating the Kurdish question as a national question. Now, 
this is an interesting fact because many people who see the Kurdish issue as a contradiction between Arab nationalism and Kurdish nationalism cannot process something like this. Because of course, Abdel Nasser is an Arab nationalist icon. But what they're not getting is actually what kind of nationalism is Nasser promoting? He's promoting an idea of a pan-Arabist bloc against basically the colonization of the Arab region, which meant that yes, he has a notion of the Arab nation, but it's a very different notion than uh, the racialist or uh, heavily ethnicized ideas of, of nation and land and blood and soil and all of this type of European style nationalism. Yeah. This is a much more uh, anti-colonially, anti-colonial infused type of nationalism. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, he used to, he has a famous saying, which is, uh, you know, the, uh, the presence of a Kurdish nation is as uh, true as the presence of the Nile. You're not going to be able to change that. You're not going to deny it. So armed solutions are not, uh, uh, you know, the resolution for it. Now, there's no evidence. And in fact, I would argue there's evidence against the idea that he supported independence. I don't think he supported Kurdish independence. There's no, we don't know what his position was in, in regards to that, but that was, that was not something he sponsored. Mm -hmm. But he definitely uh, supported the idea of uh, self-determination uh, and of uh, self-rule. Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, is an important uh, factor in understanding later Palestinian positions in relation to Kurdistan. Because remember, in Palestine, we don't have a Kurdish population. So we never had direct exposure to what the Kurdish cause is. What we have is uh, Kurdish communities that are very heavily integrated into our cities. And yeah. some of them are, of course, threatened with ethnic cleansing today. You saw we have a fam Kurd family in Jerusalem and other families like that, that have, uh, of course, historic connections to uh, Kurdistan. They probably came from there. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm not a genealogist of that particular family, but a lot of families like that came from Kurdistan uh, and then later on settled in these cities and became uh, part of the uh, local population. Because as you know, in the Ottoman period, what, what was much more important than nationality was uh, religion. So yeah. the, the Muslim identity is what brought people together. It wasn't uh, a national identity. Later on, of course, national identities took a much more important uh, uh, role. So we have those kind of populations in Palestine, mm -hmm. but we don't have a, a direct uh, lived contact with the national question in the same way that you see in Iraq or in Turkey uh, uh, or in Iran and then later on in, in Syria. Of course, Syria comes much more, much later than the rest of them in terms of its development. Uh, as a national movement and so on, but that has to do with its own particularities. So, so what? So, position of somebody like Nasser has influence on how such a question is viewed in Palestine, mm -hmm. uh, but also the positions of the Arab regimes like Iraq and others also have an influence, yeah. and that produced mixed results. You had Palestinian Karens. Uh, that adopted certain positions that were much more pro 
these regimes, especially after they started hearing of the secret contacts between Barzani and, and the Israelis. I mean, here, I think it's important we note that Israel supported the Elul uh, uh, revolution. Yeah. And, but it did not support it because of principles. It supported it because of something called the periphery doctrine. And the periphery doctrine was that in its battle to colonize Palestine and to achieve uh, uh, permanent uh, dominance there, it needed, the Israeli state needed to weaken the Arab regimes surrounding it. Yeah. One way of doing that was to uh, focus on uh, national and religious minorities. Mm-hmm. So, and they, they articulated these minorities. And this was, ben, they were Ben-Gurion, by the way, from the late 1940s, it was developing this. And it's so, it's, uh, uh, you know, full uh, development in the 50s. Yeah. The minorities identified included uh, uh, Maronites in Lebanon, uh, which is, of course, a, a religious minority. It's not a, a national one, but, uh, but it was seen as a suitable one. It included uh, the Kurdish populations, especially in Iraq. It included in South Sudan, uh, uh, you know, the South Sudanese uh, yeah. uh, peoples and so on and so forth. So you had... Of course, but uh, with the with the with the Amazigh and the Berber populations, uh, they were uh, not as invested, heavily invested in them because it was a bit further away. Yeah. Uh, of course, there were contacts, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, the main focus was on the states that were neighboring states and that could have a, a, a direct influence on the course of the. Uh, of the of the clash with with the Israeli state, but there was a contradiction because in Iran at that time, it pre-revolution uh, pre-revolution Iran uh, was a Pahlavi uh, a state that was uh, a friend uh, of Israel, and then in Turkey, uh, the Turkish state was an, a member of NATO and a friend of Israel. So the Kurd in those uh, two parts were not supported, obviously, and uh, later we see. Uh, how after the uh, the start of the PKK, how they approached Palestinian uh, resistance movement? Yeah, because uh, Sadar, uh, we have to uh, go back to the original point here. Mm-hmm. A colonialist state like Israel, or an imperial power like the United States or Britain before it, or, will never be in support of something like the Kurdish cause on a point of principle. That's true. Because the 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 they don't have a principle around uh, people's uh, uh, freedom. If yeah. they did, then they wouldn't be colonizing other people's lands, okay? Uh, so their approach to uh, the Kurdish cause has to do with geopolitical interests uh, that they have, okay? And uh, uh, sometimes Kurdish leaderships like Barzani, starting with Barzani, uh, so that identified that as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they thought, well, we got to invest in that because, uh, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. That's the principle. And it doesn't matter if they're uh, supporting uh, the oppression of my people in Turkey or in Iran. The important thing is, you know, that I, I get something out of it. And eventually that will help everybody because if one Kurdish struggle succeeds, then the others will have a a stronger base of support. 
Now that logic is, we see it appearing over and over and over and over again in Kurdish politics, if you notice. It's a persistent theme. Uh, it happens uh, and, and it's understandable because of the fact that uh, for better or worse, and more, for the most part for worse, one of the curses that have afflicted the Kurdish people geographically is that they are at the borderlands between these four states. <laughs> yeah. So, so there is a geopolitical interest uh, on the part of each one of them uh, in their effort to undermine uh, the other, to sponsor uh, certain Kurdish movements and at the same time to oppress other Kurdish movements. So yeah, I mean, uh, you also in the, your chapter also you beautiful put it that uh, the proximity to imperial power uh, was now far more important than the cultivation of solidarity. So in this case, we of course are dealing with the internal issues and with internal uh, relationships, class fractures. This uh, uh, we have this Barzani figure who is claiming to lead Kurdish nationalism, but at the same time, there are many other groups who are opposing uh, them. But this question of imperialism, this is something that I recently have become like very much invested in because uh, at the same time, we see uh, a genocidal campaign against Kurds, both in Iraq, in Turkey, in Syria, we saw it with ISIS and uh, to, uh, lesser degrees in Iran, especially after the revolution. So uh, in this case, uh, my Kurdish audience might say, okay, we are in solidarity, but how, how we can face this enemy uh, that is coming to eliminate us, to destroy us, and have done it throughout the modern history? Well, that, that's, that's the challenge and the difficulty, uh, Sardar. And that's why these issues, as I always say, we have to historicize them and talk about them in very nuanced ways. You know, um, when I talk about Barzani, you know, I could come and just uh, denounce him throughout, or I can come and present his logic even if I disagree with it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so in this chapter, I try to both understand and historicize his logic Mm -hmm. without conceding to it, okay? Because the, the, the fact of the matter is, okay, he adopted this logic of, yeah, I, I'll get weapons from whoever is willing to give me weapons. I'll, I'll take support from whoever will give me support. Now, of course, the most important relationship for him was in this regard was the Shah, okay? It was far more important than Israel. I, I should note, uh, by the way, Sardar, the Israelis love to exaggerate uh, the importance of their relationship with Barzani. Yeah, it serves them well. Yeah, exactly that, and they always like to actually exaggerate not only the relationship with Barzani but with all uh, movements uh, that had clashes uh, uh, with uh, uh, local Arab states. They always talk uh, exaggerate the relationship with, the, for example, some of the Maronite leaderships in Lebanon. They exaggerate, so. You know, and that has to do with complex dynamics. I don't want to get into them, but they have to do with what, what's called in, in Israeli parlance, Hasbara. Uh, that's part of their propaganda style. 
Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they have many uh, groups in the campuses around the world. Yeah, have many groups, uh, and it's 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 a very sophisticated campaign. It's partly psychological psyops, you know, psychological operations. It's you know, it has many different dimensions to it. Yeah. Uh, the reality is, though, that the Kurdish movement did not need to depend on Israeli support at the time. This was a choice that was made. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in uh, unlike the Shah, the Shah, they 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 could not have launched uh, the revolution without Barzani needed the Shah because he needed uh, border supplies. He needed uh, that kind of financing. Where are the weapons going to come from? Where are you going to? Uh, you know what I mean? All of these uh, logistical challenges. So part of the question then is, what is the point? And this was the, uh, the issue that was raised by a lot of uh, progressive Kurdish fighters at the time that joined Barzani in the, in the revolution, even though they didn't necessarily initially uh, uh, see it as, in, uh, as the only course of action. Some of them thought there were other options available, but after it started, they launched, they, they joined, okay? But they did not see the necessity of the Israeli connection. In fact, what they saw was that it's a liability as well. Yeah. Because, okay, what you get in some extra military supplies, you lose massively in terms of framing regionally yeah. amongst the people that you want to influence the most. Okay. Now, some people will come and tell you they, there was no point. You couldn't have influenced uh, uh, Arab states or parties or populations. But the reality is that's not true. And if we look at the historical record, you see, you'll see what I mean, Sardar. I'll give you an example. The Ba'ath Party. What's a good example? Everybody will come and tell you the Ba'ath was inherently anti-Kurdish. Is that correct or not, Sardar, in general? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, when you see 1988, you, you definitely... Of course. You come to 1988, you read backwards, then it becomes easy to say from the very beginning, this was the direction. But pick up somebody like uh, Jalal Talibani's memoirs, or even pick, pick up Barzani's own uh, uh, memoirs, although uh, uh, you know they're not presented as memoirs, they're presented as uh, documents, but he has a memoir section in, them, okay, mm -hmm. in the introduction. And you will see that there was a major, huge wing of the bath that was very open mm -hmm. to uh, the Kurdish question. And I'm, I'm, I'm referring here to Abdul Khaliq al-Samirai and others of that sort, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, now, they, some of them, uh, you know, got purged, of course. Uh, most of them got purged eventually. Uh, so, but, but that doesn't change uh, the, the certain realities that have to do with what was the horizon of possibility within the Arab arena at the time, you know, and how harmful something like an Israeli connection was and continues to be. Because with an Israeli connection, maybe you win, you score some military and political points, but you lose actually big time on the uh, popular regional level and you lose on the, uh, uh, on, on the level of some states as well. And even in military level, the, the reality is that Barzani, uh was defeated in 1975, despite uh, having this huge support from Iran and from Israel. 
it failed. And uh, this is too unfortunate that in uh, the referendum campaign of Masoud Barzani in 2017, there was this myth that uh, as soon as we declare independence, Israeli uh, fighter jets are going to come and protect the skies of Kurdistan. Like this is exactly what happened. It's continuing in today. I, uh, if you allow me, Abed, uh, maybe we can wrap up the politics side of your uh, our discussions in this chapter and come to the po to the poetics, and uh, to talk about the the two main protagonists of your chapter. Uh, but in terms of politics, is there like a point of uh, exit, like a, a wrapping up? I will come back to today's conditions today's situation but in terms of this history is there anything else that you want to say well i think that uh, you know what i was trying to say is we need to uh, increase historical literacy around the issue politically yeah uh, and the two concepts that i really think we need to focus on is one yeah this is there is no inherent contradiction between arab and kurdish mm -hmm. first of all anybody that promotes that idea uh, is uh, not only being ahistorical, mm -hmm. but also it's not even uh, a very good idea in terms of uh, future horizons for liberation for both okay. peoples. Um, now, that does not mean that uh, somebody uh, cannot recognize uh, something like uh, the uh, horrific uh, uh, sort of crimes of a mass scale that were committed by Arab regimes. Yeah. You know, uh, but we have to be very careful about uh, 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 distinguishing between something like uh, Saddam's Anfar campaign um, and something like uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser's attitude. Mm -hmm. These are two different things. Yeah, you know, they both could be activated in the name of uh, Arab nationalism, Arab nationalism, but they're not related to each other. One. Uh, you know, and even Saddam's campaign, by the way, if you if you examine its logic, it was not rooted in an Arab nationalist logic. It was rooted in a logic of the fifth column in the middle of a war. That's how we justified it. Yeah. It's like I'm being betrayed in the in the war. So then he goes and launches these chemical massive attacks and kills uh, over a hundred thousand people. You know, murder. Uh, symbolic uh, references to. Uh... Symbolic uh, this and that, but that's part of the overall, uh, you know, uh, if you notice, he uses the religious terminology here. And Fal, yeah. Fal is not the nationalist terminology. Yeah. With the Iran, he's using the Qadisiyya, the nationalist one. Yeah. It's an interesting, but a nationalist one that has a religious element to it as well. Mm -hmm. Like it's uh, actually, to be honest with you, it's not even a nationalist one. It's a religious one in that one. You know, but, you know, but uh, of course, it has a, a nationalism inherent to it in the sense of it's a coded one, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that, that, you know, the, the, the Kofar in this case are the Persians, you know, yeah. as far as this uh, propaganda campaign is concerned. But he still uses this imagery that, that, that is not typical Arab nationalist imagery, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and that is a byproduct of the post-Iranian revolution world anyways. Yeah, that's true. And there's the rise of Shia uh, politics and Shia dominance in the region. What, what people forget is that these ruler types of rulers have no ethics and no principles. Yeah. 
and and uh, especially with somebody like Saddam or 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 Assad or so on, the struggle for dominance and and retaining power means that they will commit massacres uh, regardless of the background of their citizens. Yeah. Now, if it you happen to be Kurdish, uh, uh, you were affected disproportionately. Uh, uh, because of the uh, long-term uh, hostility uh, that is uh, uh, examined, by, uh, that is exhibited by these uh, these figures uh, towards any notion of dissent from their centralizing state project, okay, which is why they they carried out uh, the uh, uh, purging of the all the border villages, which is why they wanted to move populations in a way that suited their map, their ideal map of not the human geography map. They wanted to reinvent geography, uh, which meant that they, they brought about misery uh, and, and dislocation. But to, to, to say that's motivated by principles or Arab nationalism or whatever is not accurate. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But uh, in terms of the collective memory of, for example, Anfal or Halabcha, there are uh, people talking that uh, about how the Arab League supported Saddam and even like uh, major intellectuals. Even uh, there is a story about Edward Said that could uh, kind of did not recognize uh, that there is uh, this genocide happening against uh, the Kurds. So there is a lot of uh, 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 like just let's simply put it baggages between the two uh, people like Kurds and Arabs but let's uh, leave uh, aside I don't know if you have anything to say about that but uh, these are uh, I, think, I think that's something I handled in the article uh, yeah. and I focused on actually because uh, again we need to confront this head-on mm -hmm. uh, we need to confront the shameful silences uh, and I think that one of the lowest points uh, in the Palestinian Kurdish relationship related specifically to the post and fall period. Yeah. But what people forget is that that was a, a, a moment uh, in which uh, the uh, PLO in particular was very isolated, mm -hmm. but at the same time was very embroiled in the intifada dynamic and was trying uh, to get uh, support for its 88 program. Yeah. So they went in the same way that you had this uh, logic that we spoke about earlier, yeah. uh, uh, the, the, the uh, pragmatic logic mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the principled one. When it came to something like Anfal, they decided to not even put it on the radar because the Saddam could have derailed their entire political project at the time. They, in other words, they needed him. Okay, now, is that uh, right? Absolutely not. And that's why we have to talk about it, you know? And that's why we also, uh, as, as progressive people, we start from the standpoint of solidarity, uh, you know? Now, does that mean that everybody went along with that? And no. that every, nobody mentioned Amphal? Absolutely not. But no. unfortunately, who has the big podiums? It is usually the official states and uh, the people that are, uh, you know, uh, basically embroiled with them in these yeah. And amid so, all of these two, all of these uh, happenings, 
we have these two giants. Uh, uh, I want to come back to this story because I'm so excited to talk about it. Mahmoud Darwish and Salim Barakat, they like amidst all of that, they are still friends. They continue this very close, uh, special relationship uh, with each other. So if you allow me, I want to uh, come to these two protagonists in your chapter. And uh, let me simply ask uh, when and where uh, uh, Barakat meet Darwish for the first time and how this special relationship between these two started. Well, uh, first of all, I think that uh, it would be good to mention that uh, Barakat and Darwish both came to Beirut as, uh, uh, as exiles in a way, or as, as people escaping uh, different oppressive uh, contexts. Uh, in the case of Darwish, uh, he was uh, one of the most prominent, uh, in fact, the most prominent young poets uh, that were operating in uh, 1948 Palestine, which is a part of Palestine uh, that was renamed as Israel in 1948, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and which lost the majority of its population, of course. They were forced out and rendered refugees. Now, Darwish uh, was active in the, uh, in the Israeli Communist Party initially and became a poet there. He wrote for Ittihad and so on, but later on achieved Arab renown uh, through uh, the work of uh, people like Hassan Kanafani, who introduced uh, some of the voices of uh, the young uh, Palestinian resistance poetry right. uh, to, to the uh, Arab region. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Kanafani, incidentally, by the way, I should note, was also uh, part of the movement of Arab nationalists, which uh, uh, was, uh, for the most part, a Palestinian formation. Uh, I mean, it had, of course, many different Arab cadres and so on, but uh, the, Palestine was the biggest focus of, of uh, the movement of Arab nationalists. Uh, and, uh, and, and it had a significant uh, number of Palestinians in its leadership. Uh, that grouping took very progressive positions in relation to Kurdistan in general. And, and later on produced, by the way, the popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine that came out of the movement of Arab nationalists. And it also produced the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Now, Kanafani uh, became very close to Talibani personally. And Talibani served on the editorial board of his newspaper, Al Hadaf, of course, which is the PFLP. So there is a whole story that? there. Sorry? When was that? Like, just in terms of. Well, this was post 1970, after the split between uh, the PFLP and the DFLP. The, the old paper used to be Al-Hurriya, mm -hmm. and uh, actually Talibani published also in that, but that was a, a separate paper uh, that was edited by a completely different uh, crowd, uh, by a very famous uh, Lebanese uh, leftist figure, uh, Mohsin Ibrahim. Uh, but but the, uh, later on, after the split, uh, Talibani became closer to the popular front crowd. In fact, he became a card-carrying member of the Popular Front. Mm -hmm. He was very close to George Habash. Uh, he, he acquired the military rank with them in Beirut. So, you know, he became very close to the Popular Front and he had a, even a military uh, rank as an officer in the Popular Front. Uh, because if you remember, 
um, after his uh, exile uh, uh, from Kurdistan uh, as a result of you know problem internal problems. He had a problem with Mullah Mustafa, and you know he had to leave for a while. Yeah. Um, you know he ended up uh, coming to Beirut, and uh, of course he was the target of both Iraqi agents uh, but other state agents. So. Um, uh, through being an officer of the PFLP, he was able then to carry uh, a gun in the car and to have like a, to move freely because, you know, through checkpoints, that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, he developed excellent connections, mm-hmm. very intimate connections with the Palestinian struggle and was officially part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, how many people know this story in Kurdish circles or in Palestinian ones for that matter? Not now, so many. I don't. I don't. Now, I those who read his memoirs, those that read Talibani's memoirs, will see them. But even he hides them—not hides them—but he—they're there in the middle, you know. And hmm. they were not minor stories, you know. He was involved in PFLP operations in Europe. Uh, now, uh, I don't want to dwell too much on that, but that involved plane hijackings and things like that. Okay, so <laughs> this is a very heavy level of involvement. Yeah, you know. Uh, so we're not talking about like a, a marginal relationship. Now, incidentally, by the way, if you pick up uh, George Habesh's memoirs, uh, he has a very intimate uh, recollection of Talibani's uh, letter to his wife when he was in prison in Syria. Uh, we're talking here in 68, actually. Uh, you know, so they, that's a very old relationship that they have, uh, and they stayed friends until uh, 2003. After mm-hmm. 2003, uh, because of uh, the involvement with the Americans and so on, uh, uh, the part of Talibani, which is again the same logic that we see uh, both in Palestine and in Kurdistan, this logic of my enemy's enemy and entering into these Faustian deals and so on. Um, you know, uh, that that led to uh, Habesh getting, uh, you know, not forgetting the friendship, but stopping it. It, it was like, I, I can no longer uh, yeah. sustain it. Uh, so, but they remained, they had a very close connection. Mm-hmm. And Talibani in his memoirs talks about all these figures that he was, you know, staying in their homes, he was very close to. And Talibani was also a, a, a person of contact for many Kurdish uh, personalities, intellectuals, and movements when they approached Palestinians. Is that correct? I'm not sure about Barakat, but... Uh, Barakat is a different story because Barakat, of course, was a poet, mm-hmm. not a politician. And, uh, uh, and Barakat did not need the introduction because Barakat is like a lot of Syrian Kurds. Uh, is very fluent in, in, in Arabic and is very, uh, um, how can I say? He comes from a generation for whom the Palestinian cause was a big dream. And, yes. and uh, I'm using here, uh, uh, you know, terminology uh, from a PKK cadre that was interviewed by Hamdi Akaya, but actually uh, Dr. Hamdi Akaya did good work on this, by the way. I recommend that people read this uh, excellent article, yeah. uh, The Palestinian Dream, uh, that covers the Turkish side, of course. Yeah. But I can say that it was, it was even a bigger dream for uh, Kurds in, uh, in Syria mm-hmm. and Iraq, because they were, of course, 
lot of them were, were very familiar with Palestine because they could read Arabic. Um, you know, they understood the cause very well. Um, and uh, in the case of Barakat, after he left, uh, uh, you know, he, he grew up uh, in, in, in this very rural, uh, uh, not, not, I mean, okay, it was in an urban center, but in, in the midst of a rural surrounding. If you're in Khamishli, those areas, up in the uh, in the Syrian uh, borderlands and it's like um, uh, the Kurdish areas there the education experience was horrific you know because and he talks about this how in school there was discrimination and so on yeah. so he yeah. was seeking a form of liberation from that and he, he found it uh, you know part uh, initially when he left to Damascus to study uh, but even that was not enough for him. So when he went to Beirut, where, which was the capital of the Palestinian revolution at the time, practically, he went to Beirut because it was the big open cultural center, but it was the big open cultural center for his sort of politics because it was the, uh, the house of the Palestinian revolution. And, and uh, when he got to uh, Beirut, uh... Like, is there a, a after date? 1970. After 1970, okay. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, soon afterwards, uh, like I think it was, I can't remember if it's 72 or 73. Uh, I have that actually in the article, the exact year of his arrival. Uh, but it's, um, you know, I can't recall, recall it specifically now, but soon after arriving, it must have been 73, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, soon after arriving, like, uh, uh, you know, he, he gets integrated into some of the uh, circles around Adonis, the famous Syrian poet. Yeah. But quickly find... Apparently very impressed by uh, Salim Barakat's uh, mastery of Arab language. Is that correct? Oh, Salim Barakat was... Uh, mastery, uh, Salim Barakat's mastery of, of the Arabic uh, language was... Uh, uh, was something that was noted by many authors. Mm -hmm. But what they were impressed by was not just the mastery, is that his freedom in breaking all the rules. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, I think part of that freedom came from the fact that he, 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 he was brought up in uh, 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 this uh, completely Kurdish setting, uh, but also the, uh, there was an inherent rebellion in him against all these rules and regulations. And um, I mean, by the way, if you read his memoirs uh, of his childhood, it's actually insane. I mean, you, I would highly recommend, I wish they were translated. Uh, I would love he has two brilliant memoirs. Yeah the, yeah, the only English collections that is going to be published, uh, I found out on, uh, online on, uh, that uh, this is going to come out in uh, September, 2021. So That's I'm very much yeah. looking forward to that, but uh, I haven't read anything else. Yeah, they're they're gonna publish his memoirs in in, in that. I think that it's time. a collection of his poems. Not ah, his, too yeah. bad. bad. Yeah, um, no, it's this is quite interesting actually that uh, he hasn't been translated for so long because in Palestinian circles and of course in uh, in Arab avant-garde circles. Uh, he's always been quite a legend, you know, uh, very well known, very highly respected. And um, 
yeah uh, but at the same time um, yeah like and it, this it, is where in uh, this is in the beirut in uh, mid 70s that uh, barakat and dervish they meet each other uh, through yeah i think it's 73 i think i'm trying yeah. to remember 73 or 72 yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, Abed, you talk about uh, this whole uh, story and history of this relationship and uh, uh, Barakat's involvement in the Palestinian resistance. Like he had this so, like really incredible poem about uh, his uh, stay in this church that you talk about, and uh, he's very much involved with the. Uh, um, revolutionary publications of uh, Palestinians. Uh, uh, and of course, there was like so many in the literary world who have shown their solidarity with Palestine. And you mentioned some of them in your chapter. Uh, what is the distinctive nature of uh, Barakat's, uh, uh, what you call affiliative solidarity that holds him so special for you to compare uh, Barakat to for example, French writers uh, Jean Gannett or Pakistani poet, writer and journalist Faiz Ahmad. What's the difference here? Uh, there's a huge difference between, between uh, his relationship to Palestine and theirs. And the key is that he was a fidai. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, he was a fidai. You know how in, uh, in uh, Kurdistan of Peshmerga, in Palestine, we have fidais, yeah? And uh, in, the Fida'i uh, role that he played uh, was, was actually at the battlefront. You know, Mahmoud Darwish actually captures him really well uh, when he talks about this. There's a, almost a, um, the, the, this, uh, this lack of interest in literature when the moment of battle is happening that Barakat has. And Darwish talks about this actually in his uh, memory uh, for forgetfulness. He says, he, you know, that he cannot, Barakat cannot understand why writers write in the time of war, you know, like, uh, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, interesting. Now, of course, Darwish himself was not, uh, this is the interesting part as well. Uh, Darwish himself was not uh, one of these fighters, but Barakat was. And to this day, you see him, he's very, uh, there's a certain masculinity that he portrays, uh, you know, and if you want to do a, a gender analysis of it, uh, that, that's a whole uh, different America. side of it. Yes, I mean, uh, look at his pictures. It's, uh, uh, you know, he, he keeps a muscular frame. He, he likes this, uh, he, but he was always like that. And he loves his knives. He has a big knife collection. <laughs> you know, it's like, you read his memoirs of his childhood and you understand because he uh, grew up in a very violent world. Right. Uh, but interesting thing about his, uh, the, the violence when we speak about it in a context like his involvement in the Palestinian revolution is that this was very much a choice to direct the violence towards emancipatory ends. You know, so, uh, so it was a revolutionary type of violence that he, that he had in him. And that's important for us to note as well. Um, you know, now in recent years, of course, um, I think uh, that aspect of him is, of course, underemphasized. He lives in Sweden now. Sometimes his name is mentioned for Nobel Prizes and things like that. So I think in general, people would rather uh, forget about his 
the fida'i barakat. But the fida'i barakat was the barakat of the entirety of the 1970s. It was the barakat of uh, 76 war in Palestine. It was the barakat of the, uh, also the um, 1982 war. In the siege of Beirut, he was at the front lines. Right, right, right. Yeah, in your chapter, you talk about that uh, part also, and also the uh, part where they move to uh, Cyprus, I guess, and they start uh, the uh, publication of the, uh, the PLO. And this yeah. is when they, uh, could we say that this period is where they, they became so close and been working together, staying together? Like, is there a specific particular period that uh, this very special relationship got so... Uh... Oh, no, it's much, it's much older than that. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, that relationship starts the minute uh, Mahmoud Darwish uh, meets Barakat in uh, Adonis's home, okay? okay. And uh, uh, he talks about this actually in, in very intimate ways. Is like you know he's meeting this really lost guy who's very shy, uh, but who's also clearly looking for a home, uh, and who's also clearly brilliant, uh, and is probably absolutely crazy as well, you know, but which uh, which is also part of the attraction in this case. Uh, you know the way the way the Rich describes it is is of course much much more uh, beautiful, uh, but he he was deeply deeply. Uh, attracted um, uh, to to Barakat. Of course, Barakat was uh, uh, was seeking him as well, but it just worked out. Now, their wishes worry throughout was quite that an age difference between them, right? There is an age difference between them, and of course, there is an uh, there is also a prestige difference between them. Yeah, uh, that uh, Barakat comes in as a young poet that uh, nobody knows at this stage. Mm -hmm. And that wish is a big superstar already. Yeah. Uh, so that already sets the tone for a very different type of relationship uh, than, you know, let's say people who are peers the same age or just starting out together. They produ that produces a different kind of relationship. So, and uh, of course, the wish uh, in the Arab world uh, and internationally. Uh, there's very few poets that have uh, achieved this renown. Is is much more renowned, even though Barakat is is is, is very well known by uh, in the in the Arab region, and and now it's becoming much better known outside uh, gradually. And of course, in Kurdish circles, is very well known and, and has a legendary status. But you know, the the wish very uh, uh, regionally only had a couple of people that could even come close, like Nazim Hikmet maybe. You know, uh, maybe uh, something like that. Yeah, these kind of uh, there's a couple of examples, and that's it. You know, uh, yeah. the regional level. Of course, uh, Nizar Qabbani from Syria. You know, you had a couple of names, but uh, uh, the the wish was uh, very very famous at this stage. So, for you could see why Barakat would be intimidated, but. At the same time, uh, he kept on trying to find the fatherhood in Darwish. Yeah. He's very open about it, by the way. Yeah. And Darwish is very open about it. Yeah. Darwish is hesitant about it. Mm -hmm. 
because he loves him, but he doesn't know if he wants any for any fatherhood. And later that produces now the biggest literary scandal, by the way, in, in, uh, in recent years in Arabic, is uh, when Salim goes and reveals, uh, who knows why, you know, I tried to analyze it in my piece, but it's, <laughs> it was quite a, a bomb he dropped uh, with so that one. the story one. that you started the chapter with. Yes, it's, it's, you know how many thousands of pages on the internet are dedicated to that? It's wow. insane. Every paper, every blog, every, you know, everybody had something to say about it mm -hmm. because Barakat comes and says that Darwish admitted to him that he has a daughter, okay? Yeah. And, uh, but that he has no interest in fatherhood. Yeah. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned in this article, the real point of that article that uh, Barakat was writing is to say that I'm his real son. I'm Darwish's real son. Yeah. Uh, which for me, I, I really believe he really means that. And, uh, you know, not in a diminutive sense of like belittling himself. Yeah. But no, in a genuine, very, honest it's... sense. Yeah. People, people yeah. think that he's playing some game here. I, I really don't think so. I, I, I really think uh, this is a very intimate and honest. Um, and it brings me to this concept of affiliation, uh, okay. Sardar, because what for this relationship between two great poets uh, represents, uh, you know, this is, we're talking here, not marginal figures, you know, the, the, Barakat is the most important Syrian Kurdish author by far. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I would argue that he's the most important Kurdish author in Arabic by far, and one of the most important Arabic authors uh, of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, uh, the nature of his uh, writing has always appealed to the avant-garde in the Arab world. It's, you won't find it on the bestseller list, mm -hmm. but the uh, aficionados of literature love him. You know, they mm -hmm. love that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Now, it's strange. It's uh, it's done in its in a certain style that some people find uh, very, for the lack of a better term, trippy. He likes mm -hmm. to trip out, uh, mm -hmm. but it's incredible. You know, he invented his own language, essentially, this guy. Yeah? yeah. So very prominent. And you have this connection between them that's very deep. Darwish was very selective in, in, in who he hung out with. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he knew a lot of people, but he let very few people in, in that way. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what I'm saying is, it's not coincidental that someone like Barakat ended up as a fighter in the Palestinian revolution. It's not coincidental that he ended up, ended up fraternizing with Darwish. And it's not coincidental that Darwish, as a Palestinian, wrote what is, in my opinion, the greatest love poem for Kurdistan in Arabic. Which Let's is, read that. Which, which is addressed to, the, to Salim Barakat, but in my view, yeah. actually, is a reflection on the cause as a whole. Do you mind reading it? Yeah, we can read parts of uh, parts of it. Uh, let me uh, pull it up for you. Um, I mean, uh, uh, I don't have the, the whole thing in front of me, but uh, let me uh, read some parts. Um, that beginning part, I think, uh, yeah, I... Yeah. Uh, it is here. I think it's page 79 in the file that I have. Yes, uh, let me find it for you. Uh, 
Yeah, I actually, in the final article, by the way, is much shorter than the one you have. I ended up cutting it uh, significantly. Okay, okay. Yeah, but, but look at this. Uh, here, we have this. Um, now, let me, let me read the, uh, actually to you. Is it okay if I read the part of the discussion of this poem? That would be great, please. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so significantly, uh, Darwish ended his collection, don't apologize for what you've done uh, with uh, the Kurd does nothing but the wind. Uh, in that remarkable text, he goes beyond the invisibilization and into the realm of magnification. Uh, now, Sardar, what I mean by that uh, is uh, in his past work, uh, especially in his direct poem that we referred to earlier on, Kur on Kurdistan, uh, Darwish uh, was engaged in what you can call the invisibilization. He was combating the attempt to invisibilize the Kurdish cause in Arabic settings. Uh, so by centering it, by mentioning it, you know, uh, he was combating an, an attempt to conceal. But in this uh, new text, he enters into a realm of magnification. Like, let's examine it in detail now. Let's look at this cause and really think it through. So his telescopic lens zooms on Kurdish, Kurdishness as a benchmark for exilic, exilic ex existences, suppressed causes, and persistence as a matter of fact, not as an object of will. As one would suspect, there are elements of the left-wing melancholia that Enzo Traverso has convincingly identified in European intellectual history. But there are also clear divergences from that tradition. Defeat is a major theme in the poem but it is not treated in the manner of the 1980s culture of defeat. Rather than an epical endpoint to be problematized, it emerges here as an assumption, the Ceteris Paribus of the Kurdish formula for existence. Memory is present, but it does not take a mournful form. Instead, we see an ontological quest to evade melancholy, an attempt at freedom from mourning and freedom from hope. Describing Barakat, the wish writes, he hasn't dreamt of anything since the jinn settled in his words. His words are his muscles, his muscles are his words. For dreamers consecrate yesterday or bribe, bribe the gatekeeper of golden tomorrow. I have no tomorrow or yesterday. The moment is my white square. So uh, now, this means also, uh, to go back to the piece, Sardar, that in the Rish's poem on Barakat, uh, the, the question of how a quest for change is sustained against, uh, without hope, in a sense, this issue of hopelessness is addressed. Yeah. And I think here, he, 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 he touches upon something quite amazing, which is, when you're confronted with a stacked deck, like the one that Kurds are confronted with, the politics of liberty trumps the risky politics of anticipation. You can sit around and wait, or you can be free. Mm -hmm. you know, in a sense, that's the dilemma. So he, he, the Rish captures that in, a, in this line 
or, it's, or, or in, in these lines, when he says about barakat, but of course reflecting on the, the Kurd as a whole, remember, he calls this the Kurd. It's yeah. about the Kurdish condition as a whole as distilled in the person of uh, Salim Barakat. He was addressing the unknown, my free son, ram of eternal wandering. If you see your father hanged, don't cut him down from the sky's rope and don't shroud him in the cotton of your shepherd's song. Don't bury him, my son, because the winds are the commandment of the Kurd for the Kurd in his exile, my son. And the eagles abound around you and me in vast Anatolia. My funeral is, is secretive and symbolic. So take the dust to its destinies and drag your first sky to your magical dictionary. Beware of the sting of wounded hope, for it is a mythical beast. You are now, you are now free, son of yourself. You are free of your father and of the curse of the names. So here we see like the theme of paternity, Sardar, is very essential here. Yeah. But it, it takes a form of a framing device, I argue. You know, uh, Barakat, in his textual role as a representative of Kurdishness, emerges as a father in his own right, issuing uh, commandments and granting many missions. So, but that produces an immediate affinitive effect when you read uh, uh, this poem, because essentially, uh, Darwish is claiming Kurdish fatherhood over future uncertainty and sacrificial existence and hovering danger. At the same time, he is producing an instant sense of recognition uh, by militating in short stanzas like these against uh, the canons of denial. Um, so, you know, I, I say in this, in this piece that one cannot conceive a greater acknowledgement of the Kurdish open wound that then, uh, then through the personalization of the unknown as a Kurd. Yeah, so um, anyways. Very interesting, very. Uh... This, ultimately you find it in when, it, when Darwish says, the Kurd has nothing but the wind. Mm -hmm. She inhabits him and he inhabits her. She is addicted to him and he is addicted to her so that he can be saved from the adjectives of the land and things. It's it's incredible. I mean, it is incredible. Uh, I think. Incredible. Uh, yeah. I haven't uh, like. I mean, I'm kind of addicted to Sherko because uh, poetry. And you know that Sherko wrote a poem for uh, for Mahmoud Dervish when he passed away. And uh, I, there is a lot of uh, the ways in which that uh, Bekas is kind of trying to make an a, a abstract conditions of what. Uh, what the Kurds, what Kurdish people are going through. But this poem is something really different. It touched so deep. It touched so, uh, uh, like somewhere uh, it, you can't explain it. So uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I totally agree with you. I, I think to be honest with you, uh, I don't understand why, you know, the the, the, the wishes uh, poem on Kurdistan, uh, the first one that was in reference to the uh, Eilul revolution and all of that, you know, that got made into a video clip. It got sang. They even commissioned like a big, uh, you know, singer to come and do it. And they have, uh, you know, they, 
it's it's widely loved because it's so direct and simple. Mm-hmm. But Darwish did not like it. That's the reality. He he kind of disowned it. Uh, in the same way that he did not like all the Palestinian poems that people kept on demanding that he perform whenever he was, uh, you know, uh, you know, you you know, he could fill stadiums, yeah, Darwish. And every time they'd be like, you know, uh, please do Hanu ila khubzi ummi. You know, I I I recall my mother's uh, bread. You know, or uh, or Sajjal ana Arabi. Record I am an Arab. All of these very direct poems from which are beautiful in their own way, by the way. Seriously, um, even as 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 early poem for Kurdistan, it's beautiful in its own way. It's a powerful, you know, poem. But it's it's not who he became as a poet. Yeah. With this poem. Uh, I have a feeling that it needs to uh, be uh, better uh, known in Kurdish areas because yeah. people read the first one and this is so much more sophisticated. It's a genuine reflection on the existential condition of Kurdishness. Yeah. It, it has a philosophical dimension to it that is lacking in these kind of direct, uh, you know, I support you, I'm in solidarity with you. This is much more interesting than that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I found that the previous uh, poem also very powerful. Like uh, the spot of the statement of support. Yeah, yeah. But this it's one is support. Yeah, it is something, something totally different, something else. And uh, this uh, one is reflective and philosophical. And very. Uh, to be honest with you, Barakat, uh, uh, when you uh, look at how he approached Palestine, even in his, by the way, later uh, prose articles, which might not appeal to lots of people, by the way, because he, he, he attacks the Palestinian leadership, he attacks the Kurdish leadership, he attacks everyone in them. Maybe some people will argue that he's too bitter, but actually I think he's onto something. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, he, he represents a certain conscience that merges these two causes together. Yeah. Uh, and he's, 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 he's both, uh, a, a real Palestinian and a real Kurd because he's a real free human being, actually. Yeah. Uh, what he captures, he transcends both identities, actually, uh, uh, because he, he goes into the essence of it, which is freedom. Yeah. And, and as a result, uh, you know, a lot of people these days, they take offense to the kind of uh, stuff he's writing. Yeah. He's, he's very harsh. Uh, maybe he's a bit also uh, bitter at the defeats. He says that. He says, like, you know, when he talks about his relationship with Mahmoud, he's like, we survived all the bitter defeats that affected our two peoples. You know, he, he writes about it in very sentimental and very painful language, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so. Um, and considering what they were through in seventies, uh, like I can't imagine, and this melancholy. And the eighties even worse for him. The eighties you know, was remember the eighties was uh, the, the siege of Beirut and the exit from it. That was the most traumatic event for uh, Barakat, hugely traumatic, because in Beirut he found a home. Uh, you know, this is a guy that had no citizenship, nothing. You know. Uh, he was existing there by virtue of his uh, 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 connection with the Palestinian revolution. All his friendships were conditioned by that world. You know, he developed a very strong friendship. And through that, 
he was able to uh, use all these platforms uh, to express his Kurdishness in Arabic. Um, you know, so uh, it afforded him enormous possibilities and, uh, uh, and, and it was amazing. Yeah. Suddenly, and he's a fighter, of course, so he's invested in this cause. He came to it, he cares about it, he believes in it. Yeah. Um, like many uh, Kurds from other parts of the world, you know, I speak in the chapter about all the Turkish Kurds that came as well and that uh, some scholars like uh, Hamdi and others have, have worked on even more, ex much more extensively, you know, and I would yeah. highly recommend that people read them on, on that, as I mentioned, but but that, that political solidarity that uh, you mentioned that, yeah, the uh, PKK and other um, revolutionary groups in the region were uh, like building this kind of connection with, uh, with Palestinian uh, resistance at that time. Uh, however, what is so special between uh, Barakat and Darwish and you, from that you're departing into this concept of affiliative solidarity, which uh, I also want to, uh, talk about it. I know it. we were aiming for half an hour and we are uh, past uh, an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this affiliative solidarity uh, that you kind of uh, propose uh, that you say a quote uh, that could draw on an incredibly rich political and aesthetic reservoir of affiliation, end of quote in your uh, uh, chapter. Uh, Maybe what do you mean by affiliative solidarity and how in this, uh, in this world that we are in with all of these uh, conflicts and uh, uh, a lot of uh, complexities related to like all sort of uh, coalitions and changing uh, political landscape, shifting solidarities, shifting uh, uh, allyships, how we can achieve that affiliative solidarity? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I think that uh, to go back to uh, the concept, we have to explain what affiliation is. And here it's very specific. I use the, an idea developed by Edward Said mm -hmm. in the world, the text and the critic. And uh, in his essay, Secular Criticism, which is really beautiful piece, by the way, people uh, highly encourage the people to read it. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about the difference between kinship and affiliation. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the context in which he's talking about this is a, a shift that's happening in, uh, in European literature. Uh, and uh, it's a shift that's uh, brought about by uh, what uh, Said uh, calls a crisis of uh, modernism. You know, uh, he says, look, in the past, you had filiation or filiative uh, relationships, which were built on kinship. Uh, you know, somebody's uh, uh, connection uh, that is biological to their uh, offspring is filiation, of course. Um, it's a biological connection emanating out of procreation. So in the literary sense, if you transfer this uh, biological connection into literature, um, this can take different manifestations, but one of them, uh, the classic one, would be the bond between an author and their uh, so-called uh, natal culture. Okay. Now, what Said says is that modernism was defined by a crisis of affiliation 
rooted in the failure to produce offspring. That's why you see in these novels uh, of the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century especially, childless couples, orphan children, aborted childbirths, uh, and uh, unregenerately celibate men and women populate the world of high modernism with remarkable insistence, all of them suggesting the difficulties of filiation. This is a quote from Said. Now, the decline of what he calls the generative impulse was accompanied by what he calls the pressure to produce new and different ways of conceiving human relationships. Now, that those new and different ways of conceiving human relationships is what we can call as affiliation. Mm -hmm. So essentially, Said tells us this is a quote, a transition from a failed idea or possibility of affiliation to a kind of compensatory order that whether it is a party, an institution, a culture, a set of beliefs, or even a world vision provides men and women with a new form of relationship, which is also a new system. So he gives two examples, Said, of that. One is uh, for a conservative figure like uh, T.S. Eliot, you know, uh, the church stands for the lost family mourned throughout his earlier poetry. And for a Marxist philosopher like Lukács, class consciousness stands as an insurrectionary form of an attempted affiliation, you know, offering the only possibility to quote, break through the antimonies and atomizations of reified existence in the modern capitalist world order, end of quote. So uh, now what I say is, you know, Said uses Eliot and Lukács as examples of conservative and Marxist affiliative visions, but we can use Barakat and Darwish as exemplars of anti-colonial affiliation. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, Barakat spent two decades in the Palestinian revolution and its institutions. You know, and, it is, in, and through that, he was part of a big tricontinental internationalist alliance uh, and lived his global solidarity in that in very serious ways. Right. Uh, you know, and similarly, Darwish was connected to numerous struggles through mm -hmm. his rootedness in, in, uh, uh, in Palestine. And those connections included the Kurdish struggle uh, with which he had a very intimate bond uh, exemplified in his choice to be to have as one of the, the closest people in his life uh, this uh, Kurdish son for better or worse he, of course he had a hesitant fatherhood towards him because he had a crisis of fatherhood in general yeah exactly unlike fatherhood yeah but Salim wanted it and you know they have this dynamic where you know, the wish grants it sometimes. He's always there. He's always doing the functions of the father. Uh, you know, supportive phone calls and doing, you know, whenever there's a crisis, he's there, all of that stuff. But, um, but the, um, uh, you know, but it's a hesitant fatherhood because he doesn't want to fall into Oedipal dynamics. I, I say actually, and this is an anti-Oedipal dynamic that's going on here. Uh, now, uh, so that we don't get too uh, abstract for our uh, listeners and get into academic, uh, you know, uh, debates yeah. around. This. Yeah, we don't want to turn it into that. But uh, what I want to say is, uh, what does that mean for solidarity today? What does those examples? What do they mean? It means that if you're born into a Kurdish background, 
family or a Palestinian family. One way of looking at the world is through your kinship, your affiliation. That my connection is just with Kurds, with the people that I affiliate with or with Palestinians. Another way that is much more liberating and much more powerful and useful for struggles in general uh, is to think through solidarity uh, beyond the level of kinship. It's solidarity on the basis of uh, uh, the, the commonality of resistance. So that's a position uh, that, is, that is very important. Commonality, commonality of resistance, a commonality of values should determine how we view these, these things and how we lead our lives. And I think that's a lesson that is very deep uh, that is portrayed by uh, people like Darwish and Barakat. And what that means is when we approach something like the uh, Palestinian-Kurdish relationship, we don't start from a position of trying to score points or to compete in the Olympics of oppression or, or to come and say, like, you know, you mentioned the case of Saeed, for example, and, and Fal or other, you know, oh, Saeed didn't comment on Fal or, oh, there's a million Kurdish intellectuals that don't comment on anything happening in Palestine, okay? Yes. But the real question is, do we start from a position when I'm looking to engage in solidarity with any people, not just Kurdish people, with any people, but especially when it comes to causes that are very proximate like these two that are from the same region and that are stuck in geopolitical contradictions that sometimes pit them against each other, not because they're inherently uh, disconnected from each other, but because of uh, precisely because they're actually part of the same web of inter in, uh, entangled web of oppression that operates in this region. Okay, like how do you break out of that? How do you break out of that? It's it's a question that has to start from uh, moving beyond this keeping like a, a, a track record. Like I, I, I was recently in conversation with a, with a friend of mine uh, and he, 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 he said something very interesting. He was like, well, and if Muhammad Ali was, uh, was going to base his uh, solidarity with Vietnam and his refusal to uh, uh, you know, go and kill the Vietnamese people as part of the US army at the time on whether uh, the Vietnam on a survey of, uh, in Vietnam on uh, with regards to their positions towards uh, uh, black Americans, maybe he would have never done solidarity. Who yeah. knows if he if he would say you could find I'm sure some Vietnamese that had uh, anti-black views. You know, yeah. you no, certainly find some Palestinians. That's it, not why we do solidarity. It is a matter of principles and uh, it is a matter of political choice and uh, it, do it is because it's the right thing to do. You know, I'm in solidarity with the Kurdish people because I see that they have a cause yeah. and they are, they are struggling for their cause and they are oppressed. You know, you're in solidarity with the Palestinian people for precisely the same reasons. It doesn't matter if all the Palestinian people take anti-Kurdish positions or all Kurds in the world take anti-Palestinian positions. I'll still be in solidarity with them yeah. as a matter of affiliation, yeah. Uh, yeah, as a matter of choice, not kinship. Exactly. And despite like so many examples, like our listeners could 
listen to that and think about all of the examples of uh, uh, anti-Arab Kurdish nationalism or anti-Kurdish Arab nationalism, all sort of really horrible coalitions that are built based on that. Uh, people could talk about Erdogan and Erdogan's uh, uh, this very deceptive politics with uh, Palestine, but at the same time, people who know, they know that uh, Turkey is so mad when Leila Khalid comes to uh, Kurdistan and visits Kurdish uh, uh, members of parliament, with Kurdish movement, or when uh, probably uh, Arab nationalists are not happy when they see uh, Kurdish movement, like uh, representatives of the movement, activists, they go to the protest, they uh, participate in uh, Arab, uh, Palestinian solidarity events and they make statements in solidarity. So of course, uh, I, I completely agree with you. And I really, really hope that this podcast is, and your chapter, your beautiful chapter, and is the beginning of this conversation. And uh, uh, maybe it took us quite long and uh, I really like our conversation, but uh, I want to uh, maybe end with your own personal relationship, how you started to think about this issue. I know that you uh, were in contact with uh, Professor Amir Hassanpour, late Professor Amir Hassanpour and Professor Shahzad Mojab. And we talked about that uh, before starting our conversation. So do you wanna uh, talk about your own affiliation uh, with, uh, with your own experience of affiliative solidarity? or maybe examples of Imam Kurds and uh, yeah. Of course, I mean, uh, there, there is no figure that was uh, closest to me amongst the professoriate at the University of Toronto than uh, Amir Hassanpour. Uh, uh, you know, he was a, a, a true uh, mentor. He was, uh, I chose also, of course, to be close to him in the same way that he chose to be close to me uh, at, the, at the time. Uh, and now it was. It was. Uh, uh, there was an element of hierarchy, of course, in the relationship because I came in as a young student, and he's uh, he was already an established uh, professor, much older, much wiser. Uh, but it was a very special atmosphere uh, to be in his classroom. Uh, Amir taught uh, uh, social movements in the Middle East that course at a time when nobody was talking about social movements in the Middle East. Right. Uh, he taught nationalism in the Middle East, a nationalism in the Middle East seminar that approached it from a very, this phenomenon from a very different approach than, than you would find in typical studies of nationalism. Because he, he both recognized the importance of uh, national liberation movements while critiquing chauvinistic nationalist uh, attitudes that sometimes could accompany them. Uh, and, and, you know, being exposed to these kind of uh, ideas uh, coming from someone who really believed in internationalism, but at the same time worked very hard on the liberation of his own people, in this case, the Kurdish people, you know, um, uh, was, was uh, absolutely inspiring, you know. Um, now, of course, uh, in his classes, we also heard so much about uh, questions of class as well questions of gender. He really was probably the first genuinely feminist male scholar I met on that campus. Because a lot of them, you know, pay lip service, but 
uh, I saw for Amir, this was like a, a very personal and deeply uh, held position. I think it was inspiring for me. The, the values were incredible. Uh, now I should note, by the way, my first book was on, on a revolution that happened in Oman, the, the Dofar revolution. And Amir was in solidarity with that revolution through uh, the uh, Iranian student movement. Uh, he was very deeply connected with that movement, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, he is the one that told me I must write on it. You know, I, I owe that to him. Uh, you know, he taught uh, subjects like that. Uh, and that, and of course, that revolution is not about uh, Kurdistan or Palestine. It was, but it was connected in the sense of uh, uh, the, the value system that we are just talking about right now. Mm -hmm. uh, incidentally, by the way, there's a resurgence in interest in it uh, because the a very famous film that was produced at the time, the Hour of Liberation, has just been remastered and re-released. Uh, my friend Henny Sword directed it, the Lebanese uh, director in the 1970s, and then now they've just re-released it. But Amir introduced me to this world. Now, what he showed to all his students was uh, that you start from the point of principle and you move from there. You know, you don't you don't start from the uh, the the point of uh, uh, accommodating reality. You start from the point of projecting what reality should be, yeah. and then you can do your uh, you know accommodations in that process. But the principle is always what's driving. Yeah, and which is very profound. And because of this very principle, he was very active with uh, so many uh, causes on the campus, so many uh, Palestinian solidarity events, groups, uh, movements uh, in Toronto and beyond. And he wrote about it. And I could say that he was uh, definitely uh, that one scholar, one Kurdish scholar who uh, uh, against all of those politics of uh, like either Israel or Palestine, stood on his principles and showed how uh, what kind of solidarity the Kurdish movement should follow. Absolutely, and to be honest with you, um, I think that this is also a generational question, and this is partly why I wrote this piece. I think it's very important for the new generation to realize that the standard Kurdish position is a position in support of Palestine. You know, it, it was a very clear idea for Kurds. There was never any doubt about it. Even though there were some opportunistic alliances here and there uh, that took place, you know, uh, during some of the events that we uh, described with Israeli authorities and so on. But, you know, uh, Arab regimes had alliances with Israeli authorities as well. It doesn't mean that the uh, Palestinian people and the other Arab peoples don't have a connection. You know, the standard popular Arab level is a, a, a at that level, the standard position is one of solidarity with Palestine. You yeah. know, so Palestine is a certain clarity to it that way. Now, on the Palestinian side, we have a bigger uh, challenge, which is to deal with the Arab regime propaganda. Mm -hmm because we're not just dealing with a Palestinian position towards Kurdistan, we're dealing with uh, books, articles, uh, and uh, uh, newspapers, uh, 
you know, that have published for decades, um, you know, uh, positions that are hostile to Kurdistan. But as I showed also in this uh, article, uh, we have a basis to work through because there is also a rich tradition of solidarity there in that sphere. Yeah. yeah. A very rich tradition. And, yeah. and we can really draw upon it. Uh, you know, we have hundreds of authors, hundreds of literary uh, uh, spheres. And there's a historic relationship that Salim Barakat actually talks about a lot without romanticizing it and ignoring the oppressions of the present, without ignoring what, you know, the, the, the horrific experiences of uh, being a Kurd taught in these Syrian uh, schools or, or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, being somebody who is exterminated in uh, Anfal. You know, we have to recognize and center those experiences. But also we have to talk about this like uh, relationship uh, in this region is very old, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, it can be reconstituted in a different way. I don't want to go into this, uh, you know, sometimes people go to the past to find solutions for the present. And they come and tell you, well, you know, Salah al-Din occurred, liberated Palestine, and let's go to the Islamic past as a solution, all of that. Which, by the way, Erdogan plays that game, for example. Yeah. Others play that game. of, uh, But I do think that we cannot erase the past either. Yeah. We, we are peoples that have in this region, including Arabs, including Turks, including Kurds, including, uh, you know, uh, Persians, other nationalities as well have been part of this fabric for a long time. Now, the emergence of the modern state system has affected us very badly. And in the case of Palestine, uh, the introduction of a settler colony oh. affected us badly. But uh, uh, that does not mean that we have to be imprisoned yeah. by, by this system. Yeah. There must be a better way uh, uh, and to imagine in the, a different world. And I think, uh, imagination is underrated. Yeah, yeah, and this. Exactly. And many Kur young Kurdish and Palestinian solidarity activists, they have realized that and uh, connections are being built. Of course, there's a lot of pushbacks uh, from uh, both sides, but uh, uh, I think uh, uh, this is the moment that we uh, we need to think about how we want to transform this region and uh, what is the role of uh, these two people's struggles, the Kurdish people's struggles and the Palestinian struggles in doing that. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I think we should end with, uh, with the Mahmoud Darwish's ending. That would be great. So Mahmoud Darwish and uh, the Kurd as uh, nothing but the wind, he says, with languages, you were victorious over identity. I told the Kurd, with language, you took revenge on absence. So he said, I won't go to the desert. I said, neither will I. Then I looked towards the wind. Good evening, good evening. Amazing, thank you so much, Abed. That was uh, uh, incredible. That was, uh, I, uh, I really loved our conversation and uh, 
I'm very much looking forward to continuing this in other capacities. And uh, I feel this is part of our responsibilities as uh, intellectuals from uh, uh, Palestinian uh, people and from Kurdish people to, to build this uh, relationship and uh, to converse, to, uh, to build this affiliative solidarity that you uh, beautifully frame in your chapter. Thank you, Sardar. I, I, I really appreciate you hosting me. And uh, Sardar, I really appreciate you, appreciate you having this podcast in the first place. It's a wonderful uh, platform for discussion and reflection. Thank you.